Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 401, Norms and Normans. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Rebecca, Hugh, and Scott for signing up already. Last week, we left off with Dover, with some good old-fashioned French-on-French violence. And it started because Count Eustace had attacked and attempted to seize the southern town, and he'd lost. In fact, he'd lost so badly that his poor young nephew, who had never fought in a battle before, but trusting his uncle, decided to join him on this venture, was captured by the forces of de Montfort. So this wasn't looking good for the Count. And as he crossed the channel back to France, I'm sure he was already thinking of ways to make peace with William. Eustace had to figure out what price William would accept. I mean, this guy had left a trail of bodies in his wake, and that was before he became king. If Eustace couldn't make this right, his nephew, and more importantly, Eustace himself, could find himself on the wrong end of a sword. Or, you know, a poison glove. But as fun as that whole situation is, let's return to the other topic of the last episode. The Normans and how they understood uh, Normanness. Because some of you might have noticed that I left out a rather important figure when discussing those questions of identity. Namely, William of Normandy, the new King of England. Now this guy insisted he was the actual heir to the English crown and that he was the rightful king of the English. He'd worked hard to characterize his reign as a continuation of the rule of Edward the Confessor, and also to portray the slaying of Harold Godwinson as the removal of an ungodly usurper. So, as the righteously enthroned king of England, surely William saw himself as English, right? Well, no. All the evidence of William's rule suggests that he saw himself very much as Norman, and also that he clearly saw the Normans as more important and worthy than the English. Now, this probably isn't much of a revelation to you, given how he treated the English generally, and particularly in contrast with his Norman buddies. But this disregard for the English went far beyond how the locals were treated by the military it goes on to be encoded into English law and custom. Take, for example, William's royal seal. Now, seals were central markers of royal authority during this period. They were the way the king was represented in official documents. As such, these seals have their own vocabulary of symbols and stylized language, all deployed to convey a precise message about who the king was. And this was worked out by the king himself and his most powerful council members. With the royal seal, he was saying, this is me, this is what I'm about, and this is why I hold power. And William's seal is weird. On one side, we see William portrayed as riding a horse, wearing full armor, wielding a lance, and holding a shield. And on the other, we see William again, sitting on a throne. And while seals were important expressions of a king's self, 
They were also in conversation with other seals. The symbols and words a king picked out could tie him to previous reigns or denounce them. The differences and continuities between seals was part of the message. And William's seal doesn't seem to be speaking to his English predecessors. First of all, because it's the earliest example of a horse-themed royal seal in medieval Europe. And that's probably because it was the first one. Now, shortly after this, Bishop Odo copied the style and got a horsey seal all of his own. But Williams, it seems, was the very first one in all of Europe. Probably because previous kings weren't all about flexing their horse creds. But here we see William putting it out there as one of the most important things for you to know about him. Maybe even the most important thing for you to know about him. The horsey portion of the seal is the first part of the seal. And we know that because he helpfully included a statement in Latin around the edge that begins on the horsey side and continues to the throne side. And that statement is the second part of the conversation that this seal is having. You see, the use of that statement isn't an English tradition. It's a Carolingian one. It was later adopted by Emperor Conrad II and also, probably critically, Pope Nicholas II and Pope Alexander II. So this seal, by its very design, was linking William to major European figures from the continent. And that's the important part, the continent. And what the inscription says doubles down on this theme. Translated, it says, With this seal, recognize William, patron of the Normans. And then on the other side, it continues, saying, As with this, you acknowledge him as king of the English. So William was being portrayed as a Norman knight. And with his seal, he's saying specifically in Latin that he's the patron of the Normans first. Now, historian Bates notes that in addition to the order of the statement, the way the hexameter is used in the statement provides precedence to the Norman side. So the Norman side is definitely first. Furthermore, the appearance of the horse on that side of the seal isn't the only thing that's unusual. So's William's use of the word patron, or in Latin, patronus. I guess Normandy finally managed to summon their patronus. Now the reason that this choice stands out is that it would have been much more appropriate to use his title of duke, or something along those lines. But no. He wasn't Duke. He was the Patronus. He was the protector of the Normans. He wasn't just ruling over a duchy. He wasn't saying that he held some title over Normandy. He was declaring that he was the protector of the Normans generally, the people that he'd been ruling for 31 years. And incidentally, this wasn't just a bit of flair that was reserved for the seal. We have multiple charters from later on in his reign that feature William appearing with the title Patronus Normanorum. And again, this was a seal. It wasn't just a hastily scrawled signature or something. We're talking about something that would have been carefully designed with each element debated over within William's inner circle for the specific purpose of setting the tone of how he should be viewed in any official capacity. And here in this seal, we have a clear statement of his duties and who he believed he was duty-bound to. 
and it wasn't the English. And you don't have to take my word for it. William made this perspective quite clear in his laws as well. Probably. I'm speaking, of course, about the murderum fine. And this was a law specifically designed to handle the issue of murder. Now, as you all well know by now, murder was rampant in England during the conquest. If there were podcasts back then, true crime nuts would have been having a field day because, man, there was a lot of violent crime happening. It was so widespread that entire towns were depopulated. And when the slaying continued long after William was crowned, the poor English plucked up their courage and complained to their new masters, Bishop Odo and Fitz Osborne, who then essentially rolled their eyes at all the whining and let the killings continue. Because they didn't need a true crime podcast to know who was doing it. They knew who was doing the killing. It was their boys. The fact was that in 1066 and 1067, the Normans and the French were dropping bodies on an industrial scale. So if there's any time for a murder fine, it was now. Hence, the murderum fine, which obviously was intended to put a stop to all this murder, right? Wrong. The murderum fine didn't apply to those killings because it was the English who were being killed in those situations, which apparently was fine as far as the new ruling order was concerned and probably was seen as pretty helpful. Instead, the fine was applied to an entirely different kind of killing. Do you remember how I mentioned that there were Englishmen who, upon realizing that they were going to lose everything to their new Norman masters, decided to pack up whatever they could carry and head into the woods? And how a lot of them decided what they could carry was their weapons? Well, funny story. Like Edric the Wild, they didn't just set up a tree fort and live like the Ewoks. No, they wanted their damn country back. Just actually like the Ewoks. And according to the 12th century writer Richard Fitznigel, the English embraced guerrilla tactics and started striking out from the wilderness, ambushing and assassinating the Normans and the French. And Fitznigel tells us that this is why the murderum fine was introduced and what it was focused on. The murderum fine wasn't a guild where a life was compensated with treasure in order to bring an end to blood feuds and stop all the killing. The murderum fine was effectively a coercion law to snitch. It stated that if a Norman or a Frenchman was killed, and if the killer wasn't found within five days, the lord of that region was required to pay a fine of 46 shillings of silver. And that is an enormous fine. Deliberately enormous, because it leads to the next provision in the law. If the local lord is unable to pay the fine in full, then the hundred where the murder took place would have to pay the remainder of the fine. But it only applied to Normans and Frenchmen who were killed. So if you were English and you were murdered, well, as far as the murderum fine was concerned, shit happens. Only the Normans and the French were protected under this law. So now we're seeing institutionalized segregation within the laws, in the form of things like the murderum fine, but also in how William and his regime openly sought to fill positions with the Normans 
And as is the case with figures like Robert, Earl of Leicester, they were also actively working to exclude the English from positions within local institutions. So the local English, right from the start, were pressed into a second-class citizenship by these new Norman masters. Because Normandy really did find their Patronus, and he definitely wasn't the Patronus of England. Now, I should point out that the Merdram fine is a sticky topic because the precise dating for when this law was first introduced isn't known. But scholars suspect that given the nature of William's early reign, the fact that it's linked to early guerrilla tactics, and some other associated documentary evidence, it's likely that it can be dated to this very early period just after the conquest. Either way, the evidence seems clear that William saw himself as Norman, not English. And identity matters, especially when you're leading an occupying force and imposing your will on the general public. But the murder and fine wasn't just some obscure marker of identities or culture. Like I said before, it was a snitch law. This wasn't just pro-occupier. It was anti-rebellion. Kill a Norman knight, and you might just beggar your entire region. Harbor a rebel, and you might watch your children starve come winter. This was a crackdown. And by cracking down, an occupying force is trying to use intimidation to break the will of the public. But it's a high-risk move. It always is. And every time this law was enforced, it would be another case where it was clear to the English that they were being subjugated and that the new laws were there not for their benefit. It wasn't playing equal. The law was there to serve their oppressors. And that clear injustice, and how far outside of English customs this law was, wouldn't only just enrage the public, and specifically the public who were used to being in power, it would also erode the systems of norms and the legitimacy of law in general. In respect of norms, and the perception of a legal right to rule, well, those things are kind of important for a regime. A functioning society, even a dysfunctional functioning society, needs a certain level of buy-in. Without that, the chance of an insurgency starts to climb. And if the timeline for the Merdram fine is correct, that would mean it took place somewhere around the same time as William's decision to return to Normandy. Which was another problem because it was both an insult to the English and also a clear disenfranchisement. I mean, you can't imagine that the wealthy patriarchs of the old English dynasties were pleased that they had to go and speak with Odo and Fitzosborne instead of speaking with their king. And that must have only gotten worse when these errand boys just brushed them off like they were nobody. That would piss anybody off. And for the English of this period, it was a massive violation of law and custom. But... Casting off laws and doing whatever he wanted for political expediency seems to have been William's style. And he didn't seem to care whether or not it looked bad or angered his subjects. Take, for example, the matter of Remigius de Facamp. Now, as you might remember, the monks of Facamp were early supporters of Project Seahorse. And that support was in large part because they felt they were owed lands and titles in England and they saw an alliance with William as the best way to get them. And this was a consequential deal. You see, the lands that the monks of Facamp wanted were in the region of Hastings, 
and the monks had a bit of history there thanks to Edward the Confessor. Consequently, they had knowledge about the local landscape, which wasn't only invaluable to the invasion, it was also very likely the reason why Hastings became the Norman base camp. Positioning themselves at Hastings might even have been the monks' idea in the first place. Though by now, those monks probably were regretting that, given how William and his knights had laid these very same lands to waste. But regardless, the monks and the city in which they resided was significant, both strategically and also politically. Facomp was even the site of the old ducal palace, and it was where William's grandfather was buried. Facomp and the Abbey of Facomp were very, very important. And now that William had his crown, and lands and titles were being handed out, one of those titles was given to a man named Remigius de Facomp, who, of course, was a monk of Facomp. And he wasn't just any monk. He was the guy responsible for deciding who was and who wasn't worthy of the Abbey's financial support. He also just so happened to be related to William. We're not told specifically what the link was, but the two were linked in some way. And finally, he was a classic 11th century Norman religious figure in that he was more warlike than you might expect. Like, way more. Remigius was an early supporter of Project Seahorse. He'd also provided William with a ship and 20 knights for it, and he had personally taken part in the Battle of Hastings. So not only could these monks go to war, they for some reason had spare ships and knights laying around just waiting to be dispatched if someone was looking to kill a king. But anyway... Clearly, this guy would need to be paid. So, to settle the tab, William named him as the Bishop of Dorchester. Because that's something that he, as the new king, could do. The trouble, though, was that while he could name bishops, he couldn't consecrate them. He needed an archbishop for that. And so the task fell to Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury. And this is where norm violations and disinterest in the laws come into play. Because as you might recall, Stigand had been excommunicated for being a pluralist, holding multiple bishoprics at the same time. And that excommunication was cited by William as part of the reason why he was invading England. And this wasn't just a minor side complaint. Stigand's illegitimacy as an archbishop was central to the Norman conquest. Their argument was that Stigand was evil and godless, and therefore, King Harold was illegitimate as king, because maybe he was crowned by Stigand. This was a major basis on how they got the frickin' Pope involved. Now, Harold wasn't actually crowned by Stigand, by the way, but, you know, just say that he was, and then tell folks it's better to be safe than sorry and kill him. And so this lie was a major reason why they were running around at Hastings with a papal banner. Moreover, following the coronation, the Norman allied religious leaders like Bishop Wolfstan were actually doubling down on this narrative and proclaiming that the loss at Hastings was the manifestation of God's judgment against the English for their sins. So the Norman party line was that Stigand was bad. Like, bad, 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 bad. But then William got the crown, and things changed. Stigand's presence in the Sea of Canterbury was no longer a sign of the illegitimacy of the English crown. 
And I say that because Stigand wasn't kicked out of the kingdom or imprisoned to be delivered to a papal legate. He wasn't even removed of his archbishopric. No, instead, he was invited to court by King William. And he wasn't just attending parties. This guy was also instructed to handle church duties, including consecrating William's relative as the new Bishop of Dorchester in 1067. So what had previously been a sin that was so bad that God had condemned the entire English public and divinely ordered the massacre of the South. Now, that was just a minor personal matter between Stigand and the Pope. So there goes another norm. And speaking of God playing fast and loose with norms, William was back in Normandy at this point. And he wasn't just visiting his wife, and possibly meeting his new daughter, Adele, Hello. and starting to pay off the mountain of mercs who wanted to return to France and didn't actually want English lands because not all of them wanted to move to England. William was also out there partying his way through Normandy. We're told that he was celebrating his victory far and wide. And I don't know how you say mission accomplished in French, but I imagine there's a banner being hung about it somewhere. And in addition to all that partying, there were also religious matters to handle. And we're told that William was traveling around Normandy, visiting abbeys and various dioceses, and making plans to construct and improve various religious buildings. And as he was doing this, he wasn't traveling alone. With him was none other than Archbishop Stigand, who we're told was treated warmly in every religious house and diocese he visited. Awesome. Now, it was also during the same period that the Norman bishops were drafting up something that you've probably been waiting to hear about, and something that's relevant to what we've been talking about in this episode. They were hard at work drafting the particulars of the penitential ordinance that the Pope had promised. Now, this was the document that was going to keep William and his boys out of hell. But that was no easy task, because it turned out that in the about six or seven months since they crossed the channel, William and his army had committed, man, a lot of sins. Like, so many sins. It turns out that when a Pope says, go get them, boys, it has a few consequences. So the bishops needed to figure out the particulars of specifically how many days each knight, merc, and pony guy needed to spend feeling bad about the sins that they committed during the conquest. This was a spiritual administrative nightmare. I mean, how many days of feeling guilty would absolve you of murder? What about trying to kill someone but just wounding them? How about if you killed someone and you took all their stuff? And um, what about all the raping? What if you weren't sure if you actually killed anybody because you were an archer? Are you good or do you need to still do a little penance just in case? What about if you were a clergyman, but you also brained a few guys on the battlefield with your club? How about if you tried to kill someone but totally whiffed it, but you really did want to kill him? I mean, this all gets tricky really fast. And it gets even worse because timing matters. For example, the killing, assault, theft, and atrocities during the Battle of Hastings weren't necessarily the same as those that were committed after the Battle of Hastings or after the coronation. Furthermore, motivations mattered. Killing someone because you wanted their food wasn't the same as killing someone because you wanted their shiny red bike. 
These were all details that had to be worked out, and individual degrees of penance must be applied to each one. Because while William and his mercs were definitely going to get out of hell as promised, the bishops and religious figures still needed to complete the correct spiritual paperwork and file the right forms to divinity. Because apparently, the medieval understanding of God was that he was quite the stickler when it came to bureaucracy. So the Norman bishops were hard at work, using what I can only imagine were holy protractors, picking out the precise mathematical angles of penance required to absolve Normans for each and every awful thing that they had done and were still doing. And looking at that list, it was a lot. Now incidentally, the top penance on this list appears to have just been three years. And while public penance did exist, most often... Penance was a private thing between you and God. Feeling sad can actually be a form of penance. Praying is a form of penance. Maybe you'd fast or give alms. There were a lot of ways you could carry out your statutorily mandated penance. And considering that we're talking about penance for over 10,000 men, I guarantee whatever form the penance took, Sir Ralph was put on the honor code. Nobody on the earthly plane was coming around to check on your hair shirt. But then again, all of this is assuming that Sir Ralph even knew what his official penance was. And there's a good chance he never actually got the memo. There's every possibility that all this religious hand-wringing over calculations of penance was ultimately window dressing. And it was there to make the promise of God's forgiveness seem a little less like the Pope just writing a blank check. And make no mistake about it, the Pope was behind this. In fact, this check was signed by the papal legate, Ermenfried. And considering that this check included provisions for the future killing of any people who resisted William's rule in England... That tells you all you needed to know about the political state of England in 1067. The Pope was giving the Normans a blank check for conquest and also for occupation. And you might be curious what penance the guy who organized all this sin was getting. I mean, what did William need to do? I mean, that seems like a pretty big question, right? Especially since, depending on which version of the Battle of Hastings you're reading it's possible he straight up assassinated a king, which is a huge no-no. Well, that particular sin and his role in all of this is curiously left out of the ordinance. And it's hard to know what that means. It's possible that William just got a freebie. Maybe conquerors get a mulligan. Alternatively, it's possible that his penance was already determined and he was ordered to build Battle Abbey at Hastings. And to be honest, it's hard to imagine that he would have done that on his own. Truthfully, it's hard to imagine he would have done it at all, short of being ordered by the guy who had God on speed dial. So perhaps he was left out of the ordinance because he already had his own special penance, in the form of some new public infrastructure and tourism pounds. Regardless, though, with this document... William and his crew were officially out of the hottest of hot seats. And I've been going through all these stories and these events in detail and sharing moments with you that are both big and small so you can really understand the situation in England. Because all too often, this is the part of the story that's left out when the conquest is discussed. 
Pop histories don't usually talk about the actions of the conquerors and the rank indifference to the lives, safety, and dignity of the conquered. And what we're talking about here is a gross violation of every kind of norm and cultural expectation that the English would have had. Nothing was happening the way the English would have expected it to. The kingdom was seized. Basic laws and protections were essentially non-existent. Efforts to seek redress, or at the very least get some sort of abatement on the violence, was met by indifference by the new ruling class. And now even God was taking the position of, yeah, man, it's totally fine that Ralph killed your son and raped your daughter. He preyed on it, so we're square. Even worse, God was actually in favor of it, as evidenced by the fact that the guy responsible for all of it, the new king, was friends with the Pope and was still getting papal privileges, and not just the penitential ordinance either. William's chosen abbey where he intended to be buried, which wasn't Battle Abbey, by the way, obviously. That was linked to Harold, and it was also in England, which is gross. No, his new chosen abbey was in Caen, in France, like a civilized person. And thanks to his friendship with the Pope, his future resting place was placed under a special papal privilege. So God had clearly picked a side here, which meant that no one, not even Jesus, was interested in protecting the English. And meanwhile, new laws were being imposed to protect the people who were doing them harm, and they included snitch provisions to financially ruin people who didn't turn on their neighbors. So norms were going right out the window. It was so bad that the new conquerors were even fighting each other now, thanks to Eustace. And I think all of this helps explain what happened in Herefordshire with Edric the Wild, and how the Silvatici were striking out from the woods, and how the people of Northumbria just straight up murdered their earl and his followers. William had created a culture where norms and laws didn't matter, because for William, might made right but the English were beginning to catch on. And Ordrick gives us a sense of how serious this was. He tells us that at some point on this year, William received word about the revolts that were taking place in England. And so he dispatched a force of knights from Normandy to sort out the matter. But they were blown off course, because that's how the English Channel rolls. And eventually, the knights managed to take harbor in the port of Exeter. And here's the thing about Exeter. It's in the south, which means it should have been firmly under Norman control by this point. And while I am sure that all of you are thinking, Exeter, isn't that the city that's famous for being where Jamie's Nana is from? And yes, that is true. But it also had another slightly less well-known claim to fame. It was where Githa, the mother of King Harold Godwinson, was residing in 1067. And her presence should have probably been a warning sign that the people of Exeter weren't all that thrilled about current events. And when the soggy, probably seasick Norman knights made landfall at Exeter, apparently, the local citizens took one look at them and kicked their pony-calloused asses. Now, we aren't told specifically what the people of Exeter did. But we are told that the knights have been, quote, treated with insult and cruelty, end quote. Nana would have been proud. 
And critically, this meant that no less than two major southern port towns, Dover and Exeter, were involved in one form of revolt or another. One involving one of William's captains and another involving, apparently, the f***ing Godwinsons. And Orderick speaks of William's, quote, great disquietude, end quote, when he received the news. And we can see why. And given how he behaved during the conquest, I wouldn't be surprised if Big Bill was stress-eating with each new report that was coming in. But as bad as things were, it was also winter. And between William and England was the channel. The last time he tried to cross, it was in September. And even that crossing had gone so badly that he had to do some corpse magic. And now it was much later in 1067. But at some point in late November or early December, William decided he couldn't wait any longer. And he prepared to make the crossing to England to put down the rebels. He left Normandy under the command of Queen Matilda. And he rode for the city of Ark. He was accompanied by his noble and religious companions, as well as his eldest son, Robert, who was at most 13 years old at this time. Orderick tells us that William was so concerned about the state of things that he and his companions rode through the night on December 6th and set sail as night still covered the city. Meanwhile, up in Canterbury, things were getting a little wild. Now, as you know, Canterbury was home to an archbishopric, which was governed by our friend Archbishop Stigand. And on the very same day that William began his panicked ride to the coast, December 6th, we have a curious entry from Edmer. He tells us that the city of Canterbury, another southern stronghold and center of cultural and economic life in the south, was set on fire. And not the city generally. We're told that it was the great cathedral that was set alight. Here's Edmer. Quote, the whole was consumed and nearly all the monastic offices that appertained to it, as well as the church of the blessed John the Baptist, where, as for said, the remains of the archbishops were buried. The exact nature and amount of the damage no man can tell. But its extent may be estimated from the fact that the devouring flames consumed nearly all that was there preserved most precious, whether in ornaments of gold, of silver, or of other materials, or in sacred or profane books. Those things that could be replaced were therefore the less to be regretted. But a mighty and interminable grief oppressed this church, because the privileges granted by the popes of Rome and by the kings and princes of this kingdom all carefully sealed and collected together, by which they and theirs were bound to defend and uphold the church forever, were now reduced to ashes. End quote. Now, Edmer lays the blame firmly on the shoulders of unnamed, careless individuals. But I find that odd. First of all, it was December. We're not talking about a hot, dry summer where the timbers would have been dried out and someone got a little drunk on the sacramental wine and tried to light a candle but missed. No, this is December. And English winters are famously damp and cold. Second, the cathedral was built in the 8 or 900s. 
And then it was added to in the mid-900s by St. Dunstan, that scourge of royal three-ways. And it had managed to survive all that time without once catching fire. At least, not badly enough for it to be recorded. So I find it really interesting that in a climate where the norms were completely demolished and the archbishop was out partying with a guy who had brutally conquered the kingdom and was excused for it by the papacy, thus ensuring no justice would be found either here or in the afterlife, suddenly one of the two pillars of the church's power in England just, whoops, went up in smoke taking many of the documents and relics that their authority rested upon, including even the bodies of their holy archbishops. But shit happens. And the next day, December 7th of 1067, William landed in England. And the English were just getting started. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. We can light it up, 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 so they can put it out, out, out.